Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Disney WTF podcast presented by The Walt Daily. I'm a Disney lover who tries to explain the magic to my husband-to-be, fiancé, main squeeze, Richie. Today, we're presenting our third mixtape of The Walt Daily, an Amazon Alexa flash briefing where we put together Disney facts for anything related to Disney with an awesome Disney soundtrack in the background. And for anyone who doesn't have an Amazon Alexa, that's okay. We are also available on Anchor.fm and iTunes. All you have to do is search The Walt Daily. So these flash briefings are super fun to create, and I hope you all enjoy listening to them. Everyone, today I have secrets you never knew about cast member name tags. I know, you're probably like, name tags, that's a weird and random topic choice, but go with me on this one. Name tags all started with Walt. He wanted people to be known by their first names to create a less formal atmosphere at Disney. Today, over 100,000 name tags are created per year by the Disney company for cast members. But you would not believe all the hidden gems that are in plain sight on these name tags. First, let's start with the basics. Cast members wear the name tags on their top left side over their heart. You'll see their name in the middle and underneath you'll see their hometown. And it really is awesome if you meet a cast member from your hometown. You might see a red ribbon hanging from the bottom of the tag reading, earning my ears, meaning that this cast member is still in training. If you see one of those, you'll want to take a look close by to find another cast member who has a Jiminy Cricket pin on their name tag because that pin indicates that they're a trainer. Speaking of pins on name tags, you'll want to take a close look at these because each one signifies a service milestone for the cast member. For instance, a Steamboat Willie pin is one year of service, whereas a pin of Walt with a Mickey sitting on his knee indicates 45 years of service at Disney. Each name tag is custom engraved for the cast member, and each cast member may also indicate languages that they are fluent in to be hanging from the bottom of their tag. These language pins are available in over 50 languages, and, fun fact, the cast member must take a short fluency test in order to receive one. Finally, have you ever seen a cast member name tag that's blue with white engraving instead of white with blue engraving? Well, if you have, you are in the presence of a cast member who's received Disney's Legacy Award, the highest honor a cast member can receive, given to you by your peers and colleagues for going above and beyond to create magic and happiness for both other cast members and guests. You don't have to be a sports fan to know the iconic phrase, I'm going to Disney World. But if you're a Disney fan, you might be interested to know the history behind it. Nick Foles, you and the Philadelphia Eagles have just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do next? I'm going to Disney World. It all started in 1987 after Super Bowl XXI when New York Giants MVP Phil Simms was asked what he was going to do next. He then proclaimed, I'm going to Disney World. This wasn't necessarily an off-the-cuff reaction for Sims. It turns out it was a part of a new campaign for the Disney company called the What's Next Campaign. It was the brainchild of then-CEO Michael Eisner's wife, Jane Eisner. The couple was having dinner with the first people to fly completely around the world without stopping. Jane asked them what they could possibly do next now that they've accomplished the pinnacle of their aspirations, to which they said that they were going to Disneyland. Well. 
She thought that sounded like a great slogan for an ad, and so the iconic phrase was born. Every Super Bowl has had an ad featuring someone from the winning team, from MVPs to coaches, saying that they're going to Disney World, with the exception of the year 2005. Although it's unclear why 2005 was the exception, the campaign picked up right where it left off in 2006. Not just Super Bowls, but athletes and stars from other accomplishments have participated, like figure skater Nancy Kerrigan after the 1994 Winter Olympics, or David Cook after winning season seven of American Idol. Okay, not to spoil the magic, but participants of the campaign do get compensated tens of thousands of dollars to say the famous five words, which is really unfortunate because I would definitely say the phrase for free if it meant a trip to Disney. everyone, today I'm here with your Disney word of the day. Today's word is hub. And hub can mean so many different things, but to Disney people, it only means one thing. The hub is where you go after you enter the park to branch off to where you want to go next. But why exactly did Disney develop the hub? Well, so many reasons. It was designed to keep guests from getting lost by featuring an icon like Cinderella Castle or Sleeping Beauty Castle that you can easily spot and get to from any land in the park. Disney also uses the hub for crowd control. See, Walt noticed that groups would often pause to see where they wanted to go next in a theme park. With the hub design, no matter which area of the park guests wanted to go to, they could quickly access it and prevent overcrowding in the center of the park. Believe it or not, it's also designed to prevent tiredness. And it does this by allowing guests to traverse the entirety of the park and get to where they want to go next with as little effort as possible. Disney, with their brilliant concepts, mm, the hub. Today we're going to answer the question, why does Walt Disney World have the Transportation and Ticket Center? For a lot of us, the Transportation and Ticket Center, or TTC, is just another obstacle we have to get past before we can really dive into the Disney magic. So why exactly does Disney World have this transportation hub? You actually have to go back to when Walt Disney was scoping out where to put Magic Kingdom on property. It's been said that Walt specifically chose this spot for where Magic Kingdom would be so that guests would have to drive the length of his property in order to get to the park. After his death, some in the Disney company tried to convince brother and then CEO Roy Disney that it would be much less costly to build Magic Kingdom closer to the main state highways rather than the far north end of the property. But Roy wasn't having it, and the original site stuck. However, a flaw was discovered upon construction of the Magic Kingdom. The area where guest parking could have been in front of the park was way too swampy to build anything on, let alone a pile of pavement for a parking lot. So, instead, the land directly in front of the park was excavated and turned into Seven Seas Lagoon. That dirt from the swamp was then laid on top of the Utilidors for Magic Kingdom Park to sit on. And the Transportation and Ticket Center was built a mile and a half away from Magic Kingdom. The TTC, or the concept of a centralized transportation hub, also fit into Walt's original plan to have people living in the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, or Epcot. 
Walt wanted people to be transported via monorails or people movers with destinations all over property, and cars to only be something used to get on and off of property. So in a lot of ways, the TTC is an homage to Walt's earliest concept of the city. It's also been said that the TTC allows for a big reveal of the Magic Kingdom, rather than being able to see it from a parking lot or from a highway. But probably the most important question you're asking yourself about the TTC is ferry or monorail? Hi everyone, get your taste buds ready because today we're going to talk about the churro. In terms of iconic Disney foods, the churro is basically the leader of the club. First, let's get to know the churro and where it comes from. Although recipes can vary slightly, the churro is made of water, flour, salt, sugar, cinnamon, oil, eggs, and butter or margarine. And its world origins seem to be conflicting. One story goes it was brought to Europe by Portuguese explorers when they returned from China. Another story goes that Spanish shepherds prepared them in the mountains where fresh baked goods were hard to find and scarce. However, what is known is how it got to Disneyland in the mid-80s. A director of food and beverage, Jim Lohman, was looking for new snacks to bring to the park while at Long Beach Grand Prix in 1985. He spotted the churro cart at the event and thought it would be a great addition to Disneyland. What Lohman changed though from what he saw at the Grand Prix was the size of the churros for Disneyland, making them a giant 12 inches to enjoy instead of the standard 6 inches that they were. Now over 5.5 million churros are consumed from coast to coast. You can get your basic cinnamon sugar churro at the parks, yes, and it will be amazingly delicious, yes, but there is an insane amount of specialty churros that have become available recently at Disneyland. There's a s'mores churro, a watermelon churro, peppermint hot chocolate churro during the holidays, a rose gold churro, and there's even a galactic churro with purple and black cinnamon sugar. A big disappointment for us East Coasters though is that the churro game at Walt Disney World hasn't quite reached Disneyland yet. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Hi everyone! Today I want to pay a little homage to Epcot's Impressions de France. This film was a part of the opening day attractions in Epcot in 1982 and is now the oldest film in World Showcase. For many of us though, I think we would consider it a timeless attraction in Epcot. And still, to this day, it remains a must-do when you're at the park. Filming the movie began in the year 1980, and really, the biggest change to it happened in 2011, when the film was remastered and shown with digital projectors. Impressions de France is shown in the Palais du Cinéma, or Palace of Cinema, on a 200-degree screen. Each of the individual screens are 21 feet high and 27.5 feet wide, which unlike the Circle Vision 360 films, allows you to sit down and really take in the breathtaking views of the country. It has an impressive 46 scenes that traverse all over France. However, initially there were 140 scenes that were shot for the film. It showcases all kinds of different people in France with all kinds of different lifestyles, from farmers markets to vineyards to newlyweds. Despite the film being from 1982, the landscapes that it shows are timeless and even more so the score that the film plays to is timeless. The score was arranged by composer Buddy Baker and features French composers by the likes of Camille Saint-Saëns and Claude Debussy. No matter what kind of day you're having at Epcot, when you step into this theater, you are immediately transported. 
everyone in the theater is mesmerized by the landscapes and entranced by the music. Everyone, set all systems to go. We're going to be blasting off to Space Mountain. The concept of a ride giving you the experience of space is something that Walt Disney himself conceived. Unfortunately, his ideas didn't meet the technology that was available at the time, so the idea had to be put on the shelf. Although not an opening day attraction to Magic Kingdom, in 1975, Space Mountain opened and became the first thrill ride in the park. It's currently the oldest operating roller coaster in the state of Florida. The ride features two mirror tracks called Alpha and Omega, with a top speed of about 27 miles per hour. But in some earlier designs, Imagineers were actually thinking of designing four separate tracks. A real-life astronaut was on the design team to bring the concept to life. The building must be pretty huge to house two separate roller coasters, right? But just how big is the Space Mountain building? It's actually twice the size of the interior of Spaceship Earth in Epcot and is sunken into the ground to add more interior space. Is it just me, but I really feel like the difficulty that you might experience getting into the train vehicles are a nod to the difficulty that you might have getting into an actual spaceship? Even though it's a little disappointing that the trains no longer have the glow-in-the-dark strip after the 2009 refurb, it adds another layer of darkness to the ride, so I get it. From the star tunnel in the queue to the sounds of blasting off, you definitely feel like you're breaking beyond the atmosphere to blast off like an astronaut. Hi everyone, today I'm here with some ghostly facts about the Haunted Mansion. This is the only Disney attraction to be located in four different lands in four different Disney parks. For the record, they are Fantasyland in Tokyo Disneyland, Liberty Square at Magic Kingdom, New Orleans Square at Disneyland, and Frontierland at Disneyland Paris. And each one of them is totally different in appearance from the next. Original ideas for the attraction were torn between being ultra scary, ultra spooky ride versus having more gags featuring zany characters. In the end, it was decided that the Haunted Mansion would have both creepy and dark themes with some comical twists and turns of the ghost just having a good time. What about our ghost host, the gentleman who explains to us that there's room for one more happy haunt in the tour? He's been given the name Master Gracie in honor of Imagineer Yale Gracie, who designed most of the special effects on the ride. Now, let's talk about my favorite psychic medium to the other side, Madame Leota. She is voiced by Eleanor Audley, whose conjuring declarations may sound familiar. She also voiced iconic villains Lady Tremaine in Cinderella and Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty. How about another creepy icon of the mansion, the Hatbox Ghost? His appearance alone will send chills up your spine. The apparition's head would first be seen on his body and then disappear and then reappear in its hatbox it carried. It was originally located in the attic of the mansion opposite to the murderous bride. It's been said that he's actually a former groom of the bride and has returned to haunt us just like the former bride has. Grim, grim, ghost, come out to socialize. Now don't close your eyes. 
your eyes and don't try to hide. Or a silly spook may sit by your side, shrouded in a darkish hide. They pretend to terrorize, when we most not to socialize. Hi everyone, grab a snack and find a viewing spot. We're going to talk about fireworks at Walt Disney World. at Disney parks have basically been a staple to any Disney day since 1956 when the first nighttime spectacular debuted in Disneyland. With a daily pyrotechnic display of some kind in almost every Disney park, it's probably not a surprise that the Disney company is the largest consumer of fireworks in North America. In Illuminations Reflections of Earth at Epcot, over 750 shells are fired every night. That's almost 300,000 shells per year at just Epcot alone. Traditionally, firework shells are thrusted into the air with gunpowder, but not at Disney. Instead, they use pneumatic shooters that power the shells with air. This improves the accuracy and altitude of the fireworks and reduces the fumes that are given off by the show, which makes for a better guest viewing experience for us. Obviously, fireworks do pose the risk of starting an actual fire in certain conditions, say the dry season. To prevent any debris from the show starting a fire at Magic Kingdom, cast members wet the pavement around the park if the weather is too dry. And at Hollywood Studios, Disney might elect to use fewer fireworks in the Galactic Spectacular to be proactive about fire safety. There is one park though in Walt Disney World where you won't be able to see fireworks, and that's Animal Kingdom. And of course, it's because of the animals. Disney doesn't want the animals to be disturbed with loud noises coming from the fireworks in the park. From Happily Ever After to Fantasmic, no matter what the show or however many fireworks are used, one thing that's guaranteed is that it will tug at your heartstrings. I'm not crying, you're crying. everyone, grab your lapu-lapu and come with me to discover some tropical history of Disney's Polynesian Village Resort. Let's start with the layout of this opening year resort. As it stands, the layout of the resort is the great ceremonial house surrounded by 11 longhouses that are each two to three stories tall. But in the earliest concept art for the Poly, the central ceremonial house was going to be a triangular high-rise building reaching 12 stories tall, surrounded by a few longhouses. This style would have mimicked hotels in Hawaii that were being built at the time. But the designers decided to scale down the central building, and the final result was the great ceremonial housing, shopping, and dining, surrounded by eight longhouses with guest rooms. Similar to the contemporary resort, guest rooms were not actually built on site. Instead, the construction company U.S. Steel built the rooms in a modular fashion about three miles off-site from the resort area. The rooms were pretty well equipped before they were even on property, having electrical, plumbing, and even wallpaper already installed. Unlike the contemporary, though, where rooms were slid into place after the building frame was constructed, the poly rooms were stacked on top of each other. Do you want to take a guess at the room rates for the poly in 1971? Well, that would depend on a few factors. So based on the location of the room, the floor you were on, and the view you had, rooms were going for $29, $36, and $44 per night. Did you ever hear the rumor that you could actually surf in the lagoon at Beachcomber Isle on property? Well, this is kind of, sort of, but maybe not really true. A wave machine was installed in the lagoon for guests, and the beach area did have recorded ocean sounds that were piped in over the speakers in the resort's early years. Unfortunately, 
Unfortunately, the waves weren't quite big enough to surf on, and the wave machine was eventually taken out of operation. So just hang out on the beach with your tasty beverage and enjoy the breeze. Everyone. Today we're going to get to know everybody's favorite citrus mascot, the orange bird. The orange bird was created in 1970 as a mascot to the partnership of the Florida Citrus Commission sponsorship at Walt Disney World. The commission was sponsoring the Sunshine Pavilion, which housed Tropical Serenade, later known as the Enchanted Tiki Room, and Sunshine Tree Terrace, a quick service location featuring citrus-inspired snacks. Disney was who actually created the orange bird as a way of showing support of the commission's large investment in the pavilion. The look and the name of the bird go hand in hand, having a literal orange for a head and green leaves for wings. Big campaigns were started featuring the bird, who did not talk, chirp, or make noises of any kind, and only communicated through a thought bubble. Both Florida Citrus and Disney were using the orange bird in ads and billboards throughout the state. A big contributor to the orange bird's initial popularity was a book and record set of songs about him by Disney legends the Sherman Brothers, featuring singer Anita Bryant. Bryant and the orange bird were also featured on TV and radio, furthering the character's popularity. By the late 1970s though, Anita Bryant was met with scandal in the public eye and a lot of media featuring her was removed and subsequently the orange bird was too. Although, he was still present in the park, even as a walk-around character available for pictures. Until 1986 that is, when the Florida Citrus Commission and Disney parted ways. At that point you could no longer meet the orange bird and by the mid-90s, iconography of him disappeared from Adventureland. But in an amazing turn of events in 2000 2004, the orange bird appeared in Tokyo Disneyland for Orange Day, and with an overwhelming surge in popularity overseas, Disney finally brought back the lovable character in 2009 to Walt Disney World. Now he is everywhere, from dresses to purses and Mickey ears to glass pitchers. Today the orange bird is a staple character for nostalgics and new fans alike. Hi everyone, today I want to give some love to some underrated attractions at Walt Disney World. Everyone has their favorite underrated attractions that they have to hit on their Disney trip that they might have to convince their travel companions are worthwhile. Well, here are a few of mine. Let's start in Magic Kingdom and take a walk up to the Swiss Family Treehouse. First of all, it's an amazing giant breezy treehouse with an amazing view of the park once you reach the top. How cool is that? I love walking through and marveling at the living quarters with the desk and a bedroom with the tiny bed and the clothes thrown around. And it's mesmerizing watching the wheel towards the base of the tree spin around, gathering water from the stream, and carry it up to the rooms above. Fun fact, you actually have to climb 116 stairs to reach the top of the treehouse. Okay, next, 
Let's hit the Mexico Pavilion in Epcot and talk the Grand Fiesta Tour starring the Three Caballeros. Yes, okay, boat rides in Disney are definitely pretty common and this particular one hasn't become the most classic per se, but featuring a classic trio in the Three Caballeros, Donald, Panchito, and Jose from the 1944 classic brings back so many memories from watching the movie on repeat when I was younger. When you first set sail and cruise past the Mayan temple through nighttime in the Mexico Pavilion, the whole even though you're inside, you feel like you're outside thing, yeah, I can't get enough of. The colors and Mary Blair touches of the ride too, the music, the hijinks and hilarity of the bird trio, and the fact that there's hardly ever more than a five minute wait for it, put this one high on my list. And finally, my last underrated attraction is Chester and Hester's Dino-Rama in Animal Kingdom. I feel like I talk a lot about the wonders of Dino-Land USA, and it's partly because I can never get enough of the rich backstory of the land. Dino-Rama itself is chock full of backstory that make it worthy of at least a walkthrough on your trip. It's a carnival that local gas station owners, Chester and Hester, opened right off of Highway 498 in Diggs County. Highway 498 is a reference to Animal Kingdom opening in April 1998. And definitely look at the ground as you walk by because it's literally paved like a two-lane highway. It does have vintage games and rides, as Disney likes to call it, but the real draw here is how it truly transports you out of Animal Kingdom into Dino-Rama at Dino-Land USA. everyone, today we're going to talk about a special time in Disney history, the Disney Renaissance. Finally, from the depths of the Dark Ages, came the Age of Enlightenment, the Renaissance. This was the time when the animation studios of Walt Disney had a resurgence in successful films following a studio lull after the deaths of Walt Disney and Roy Disney. Marked from 1989 to 1999, basically all the animated features that were produced during this time period became Disney classics. Each had a formula of being anchored by a great storyline with the backdrop of a Broadway-style musical. It kicked off with the release of The Little Mermaid in 1989, becoming both a critical and commercial success. Several movies during this 10-year stretch earned Academy Awards for the Best Original Song, including Under the Sea in The Little Mermaid, Can You Feel the Love Tonight in The Lion King, and Colors of the Wind in Pocahontas. 1991's Beauty and the Beast is obviously a Disney classic, but it made more history by becoming the first animated feature film to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture, although it did lose to Silence of the Lambs. What was the most commercially successful film of the Renaissance era? It was The Lion King, earning nearly $1 billion, billion with a B, worldwide at the box office. The least commercially successful film during this time was The Rescuers Down Under. Yes, the sequel to 1977's The Rescuers performed the worst of 10 movies that were released during the Disney Renaissance. But I think we can all agree that this doesn't matter because we will always have a special place for The Rescuers Down Under in our hearts. More than just movies, this was also a time when the iconic Disney Afternoon was broadcast on TV. Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers Tailspin, Darkwing Duck, and Goof Troop were just more icons that were released during this golden Disney age. Following all the success that Disney had during this time, many other studios tried to replicate the Disney-style Broadway animated feature, but generally they were unsuccessful and did not reach anywhere near the acclaim that Disney did.
you so much for listening to this special episode of the Disney WTF podcast. Please let us know what you think. Reach out to us because we would love to hear from you. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Medium, Instagram. You can email us at hello at thewaltdaily.com. And again, thank you so, so very much for everyone who is listening. We hope you have a very magical day.